This week, Michael Daglish from Logarithm joins us for our feature interview today in the Enterprise Security News. Sky High gets some patents. A threat intelligence vendor goes all in in the channel. A web application scanning tool is integrated into the SDLC. Zero false positive virtual patching WAFs. And glimmers of hope for IT security in the enterprise. All that and more on this edition of Enterprise Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we talk security vendors and aren't afraid to name names. It's Enterprise Security Weekly. This episode of Enterprise Security Weekly is brought to you by IT Pro TV, an easy, entertaining approach to online IT training. Access over 2,000 hours of up-to-date, high-quality video content live and on demand via your PC, mobile device, and more. For a free 7-day trial and 30% off the lifetime of your account, visit itpro.tv forward slash enterprise security and use the code ES30. Gain control of cyber risk with Tenable IO, the first vulnerability management platform built for today's elastic assets like cloud, containers, and web apps. Discover a fresh, asset-based approach that prioritizes vulnerabilities while seamlessly integrating into your environment. And improve ROI with the first elastic licensing approach based on assets, not IP addresses. Tenable IO delivers the data and context you need to secure your elastic attack surface. Start your free Tenable IO trial today by visiting tenable.io. Are you worried about PCI compliance? Does your development team understand or care about security? Are you ready to face a breach of your customer's sensitive data? See the worst that can happen before it does. Black Hills Information Security can help you help management see the future. Email consulting at blackhillsinfosec.com to find out how a web application penetration test can mitigate the risk before you go live. Welcome to Enterprise Security Weekly, episode 37 for March 16th, 2017. I'm your host, Paul Asadorian, on the lines via Skype, returning from his fresh vacation in Hawaii. Mr. John Strand, welcome back, John. Hey. And what exactly have you done to me this week with the news stories? All right, we'll get to that later. <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Hopefully you did hula dancing and pig roasting and surfing did, and, and all that. Pig time. roasting and the surfing and the bodyboarding and, and uh, tiki, lots and tiki lots drinks? of driving. Lots oh, yeah, of driving. yeah. Lots, lots of tiki drinks, too. Nice. That's awesome. Well, it's not as fabulous in the security news this week, but we do have fantastic. We do have uh, a couple of quick announcements before we get into our our interview. Uh, the 10th anniversary edition of Source Boston is being held this April, including training sessions on the 24th through the 25th, and conference talks on April 26th through the 27th, featuring awesome speakers from our security community. They actually accepted my talk as well. I'll be talking about IoT uh, nightmares and how to sleep at night. So that should be fun. Events are going to take place in Boston at the Courtyard Marriott downtown and Security Weekly listeners get a $100 discount on either the training or conference passes when you use the security, uh, the discount code, not the security code, the discount code Security Weekly. Visit sourceconference.com for more information. Looking forward to that one. InfoSec World 2017 is being held April 3rd through the 5th at the Omni Orlando Resort at Champions Gate in Orlando, Florida. Security Weekly listeners get 10% off that conference when they use the discount code OS17-SW. Here talks from Kevin Johnson, Rich Mogul, Corey Doctorow, and more. Visit infosecworld.misty.com to register today. Our special guest today is Michael Daglish, an industry veteran spending the last 15 years deeply entrenched in the network and security world. At Logarithm, Michael has worked with and built a team of security professionals who are growing strategic relationships with partner uh, with their partner and community customers. When not on the road evangelizing security intelligence and SIM, Michael spends the majority of his time learning about the latest attack vectors, kill chains, and advanced evasion techniques. Michael, welcome to the show. Glad to uh, glad to be here, Paul. So, Michael, I just I wanted to start off um, by talking about the market that Logarithm uh, is targeting and talk about the difference between or the similarities between what we call security intelligence and SIM. Okay. Um, so, the market we're targeting is a <clears throat> fairly simple enterprise, small, medium, um, and emerging enterprise. Uh, there's a, there's a level of complexity with SIM 
natively, and I think we saw a lot of that with uh, some of the uh, some of the legacy sim platforms that are out there. So um, we uh, we've taken a different approach to it. There's a obviously a number of reports out there that have uh, kind of validated the ease of use of deploying a, a platform. So if you're looking at the difference between sim and security intelligence, I think uh, sim and log management in general um, has always been you know, uh, uh, a technology that, that in theory was supposed to work really great, you know, um, but never leveraged properly because if, if you're not actually bringing more context into the data, I know uh, last week you guys talked about some machine data intelligence and, and machine learning on, on your episode, uh, but machine learning is great, but if you're not actually adding additional security context to it, you're not actually adding, uh, you know, proper I guess, analysis of the data when it is in the data lake. So security intelligence is taking regular security streams, taking additional security streams from forensic sensors or whatever, and then obviously combining them to, to understand uh, that data better and then apply some discrete algorithms to that data to, to find the pattern of behavior that, that makes sense in a security industry. One of the things that John and I talk about uh, quite a bit, actually, is the the number of different log sources that are out there and the different log types across all of those sources. And even specific to a particular source, the data is so unnormalized. What does Logarithm do differently to help us normalize all that data? Yeah, that's normalization, parsing support. <clears throat> so I, I guess the first step is processing the data. So you can receive the data in a number of different formats. And I, I've uh, I've been... Uh, active in the industry since uh, Nortel back in the 90s. So I know there's uh, there's always been people putting these calls or these requests in so that vendors would stick to a normalized data format or at least a, a facility to send data, whether it's syslog or, or whatever. And some vendors have gone different paths and, and try to define uh, different collection formats like CEF or LEAF or whatever. Um, I think the uh, if we get past the problem and we look at a solution to the problem is the vendor has to solve for a lot of the, uh, the, the the disparity across a lot of the log sources. So what Logarithm's done to solve for that is uh, they have a team, it's called Logarithm Labs. We call it our machine data intelligence team. Uh, there's about 760 different vendors and log sources that we're continuously updating and parsing for. So when we get the data, we parse it, then we classify it out three ways, and that's security, audit, and operations. And from there, we splinter down into a uh, different paths, whether it's authentication failures or, um, you know, uh, connection requests or connection denies. So um, I, I've got to be honest that that team sounds like it, like, like if you walked into their bay where they're working, it must be something out of event horizon where everyone's going crazy. And there's people walking around saying they don't need eyes to see. <laughs> yes. That, that poor team, uh, they, they get so many requests, whether it's from, you know, current customers or prospects or, even some of our OEM and alliance partners like Tenable, just trying to keep up with other vendors as they modify their their outputs is uh, is pretty impressive. <clears throat> but I, I guess from uh, from our perspective, there, there's some other vendors out there who do similar, um, you know, similar I don't know, functions that we do in the market. I guess from security intelligence and data aggregation, um, but they rely on community driven projects to to you know do the classification for them, and it's kind of your mileage will vary, right? Uh, which is why we've invested pretty heavily in this MDI team. Um, if you're working for an enterprise today and you had to advise someone on how to prioritize and tune your different log sources, like what advice do you have for people? Obviously, there's two ends of the spectrum, right? There's log everything and log nothing. Most people yeah. fall somewhere in between, and the, the the devil's in the details when you're in between, right? So, wh- where do you guide people on focusing? Um, focus on uh, high fidelity sources first, right? Um, and any fit, and so if you look at an atypical attack pattern, and, and John, you know this from your work at Black Hills. I, I actually spent some time with your guys at a couple B sides uh, events down in Orlando, uh, in the UCF mm-hmm. campus. Uh, but if you look at any atypical attack pattern, a lot of the focus is on user behavior, right? There, there's other indicators within a network. Uh, we're not going to talk about IOC data, but just indicators that there might be, you know, long-running sessions or whatever. Network indicators are fine, but the users are, are specific interests because you can model a user's behavior. People don't change much. 
Uh, and when they, when they do change, that's when you should be able to understand that change and how they're accessing data, how they're transferring data, um, and just about everything they do within the environment, when they're logging in, when they're not logging in, what location they're logging from. So um, if you're looking for or customers looking for specific guidance, what you really want to start with is have the customer focus on the data that's richest with user data. It could be domain controller logs. That could be uh, CASB, like you guys have in the news about Sky High, and tying a lot of that data back together to understand the user. So I got a question whenever we're talking about logs. This is a question I've been asking a lot of people lately. Um, whenever you look at the total number of event logs that a SIM receives, what percentage of those event logs do you think actually have alerting and monitoring rules written for them? And what percentage of those logs are completely ignored and just sit in the SIM forever? I would say from a, from an archive perspective, 98%. I would say um, you typically see anywhere between ninety eight percent are ignored, or ninety eight percent are actually have actual rules written for them. I would I wouldn't say they were ignored. Um, so it all depends on how the sim actually looked at the data. Well, yeah, because there's there's different ways different sims actually look at data, right? Um, and in our instance, what we do is um, every log that comes in hits a processing layer, and it gets that classification, that commonality attached to it. Now, probably about 97% of that stuff would get shipped off to archives, right, and, and put to the side. However, it passes through uh, the processor to look for events, specific events that the rules are hitting, to push up to what we call the platform manager. Um, the platform manager is where AIE lives. That's uh, the Advanced Intelligence Engine. Um, so AIE will process that 3%, but it also processes everything that's being indexed out to Elastic as well. So it does a second processing tier against it because it needs to look at it to see if anything that correlates against the rule set from the actual events and then the stored data makes sense. Um, so it's it's kind of a multi-pronged answer. Sorry, three percent really go up to the events area, uh, but you can't discount the other ninety-seven percent because those events might tie into data that you don't typically assume are events too, right? So you have to actually still process that other 97%. If you just push it to the side, you're opening up a lot of blind spots. That makes sense, John? Yeah, so the majority of the logs are, are used basically as a reference based off the 3% that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, because if you have that 3% that's interesting and you have rules that are looking for that indicator, it can cross-reference back to that other 97% to look see if there's another indicator in, in, inside of an attack chain or a pattern that you've created. What's the uh, what's the best uh, source for endpoint uh, information? Does um, does Logarithm have uh, an agent or integrate with other agents to pull some of that endpoint information back? I think traditionally when we look at SIM, we think about, well, yeah, I'm going to grab all my syslog, I'm going to grab all my Windows logs, I'm going to grab some network logs. And I think for a long time there was a gap on the endpoint. I think that gap is closing. And I think as a uh, community we're getting better at processing some of those logs. How does Logarithm do it? A couple different ways, right? There's uh, <clears throat> Windows event logs, which are probably the oldest way to do it, looking at event IDs. The logarithm also has a what we call an endpoint sensor. The endpoint sensor performs a couple of different functions, everything from uh, process monitoring to uh, file integrity monitoring, registry monitoring, and ne network connection monitoring. Uh, so as network connections are built up, users log in. That, that endpoint sensor can also send the data back up to the SIM. Uh, that doesn't preclude the ability to integrate or work with folks like uh, Carbon Black or Silence or or some of the other uh, uh, newer players in the endpoint market. We uh, we're not in the uh, well, at least in the response area at the at the endpoint side uh, or the active protection area. It, it's more of a forensic data generation at that point. Now, on that note, we see a lot of these companies that are trying to push very, very hard. If you're looking at Carbon Black, it's not just protection of the endpoint. They're also trying to get into that automated incident response. Um, yeah. And there's a bunch of vendors that are doing that as well. Sentinel-1 would be another one. Um, it seems like with you guys, you're kind of focusing on what you do and what you do best, and you're not trying to take those steps into trying to be an incident response management platform. You're just trying, trying to take the steps into doing endpoint protection and automated incident response. How do you actually look at the market moving forward over the next, let's say, 18 to 24 months? Is that something that's going to play out well for these different vendors that are trying to be absolutely everything, or do you think it's better to try to stay, uh, stay true to what you do rather than trying to jump into absolutely everything? I think um, we're in March right now, and we've got about 
three months uh, before the maintenance and the uh, the 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 acquisition season, merger and acquisition season starts. <laughs> Uh, so I, I think there are a lot of these newer endpoint vendors. We saw it with Carbon Black and Confer, right? Um, but mm-hmm. some of these smaller guys, Sentinel One and, and a couple other folks, uh, they might get snatched up by the big boys. Uh, I have no idea. I have no inside knowledge. So, you know, uh, I'm just speculating that uh, we're going to see I think some it's safe. points. I think it's a safe spec. I think it's very safe speculation because that's what most yeah. of these companies want at the end of the day is to get bought up for millions of dollars. Which is why they're coming out of the woodwork, right? I mean, I think yep. there's been uh, 12 new endpoint vendors just in Boston alone in the last year and a half. Uh, so it's uh, just it's pretty really that many, and wow, okay, yeah. I yeah. think there's I think there's over 40 total. Is from yeah. what I'm told, Cyber Reason, Avec, well, Aveco is Great Britain based, but they open a Boston based office. Cyber Reason's local in Boston, Israeli company. Um, Confer was a Boston based company. Uh, Carbon Black was a Boston based company. Well, not Carbon Black, but Bit nine, Bit when originally yep. was was a car yep. Boston based yep. company. There, there's so many companies just popping up here on the East Coast, um, and uh, they are looking for a, a pretty, uh, pretty nice exit, right? Uh, great technology stacks. They're doing stuff with technology that we couldn't have done about five years ago in the endpoint space. Um, on the sim space, though, I, I think to answer your question about incident response, so Logarithm does do incident response. I, I don't, uh, I don't know if uh, we've talked about it on your show before, but we do. Uh, what we call threat lifecycle management. That's a, it's a great marketing word for we do case management and some incident response and some orchestration. Uh, and the orchestration is typically leveraging other tools, right? So anything that we integrate with, whether it's a Palo Alto or Carbon Black, leveraging their APIs to take response and stuff. Um, but Very there's cool. case management built into it. And we don't see ourselves replacing traditional case management systems or, or ticketing systems internally. Uh, it's more for and, and John, you should know this. Uh, when when you are doing a red team test or whatever, and it's a, a long stretch, you guys are doing thirty days or or however. If you do have some persistence in the network, one of the one of the things you're looking for is anybody who's on IM or sending uh, emails or, or messages across the network saying that they there's something weird going on or they've been hacked or or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and the best way after you set up your sniffers inside of the network, there's somebody uh, in in a in a ticketing system that's not using a secure channel, sends a message, an IT guy to another IT guy saying, I think this asset might be broken into. I mean, that's a flag for you as a red team to, to move and either maintain your persistence or, or move on somewhere else. No, it's at that time that you jump in the middle of the communication <laughs> and say, yes, yes, and you have been hacked. <laughs> Put up a false flag. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations, sir. You caught us. Well done. <laughs> so what we really envision our case management platform is, you take you take the the security investigation and incident response away from your typical IT folks, and, and you leverage it inside the platform where all the log data and all the you know the, the data that you're going to have to maintain chain, maintain chain of custody for lives. Right? That way, you don't have an IT guy saying we've been hacked or breached, and then that goes into a a whole different spectrum when you're talking about cyber insurance and defining a security incident versus a breach, right? Um, so you don't want your guys who aren't security guys to touch that data inside of their IT ticketing system. Leave it inside of the security appliance and you know, then offload it when you're ready to call it a breach and hit your 30-day window to report it or, or however your state laws or federal laws work. So, uh, Michael, with some of the latest uh, attack vectors that are out there, in, it says in your bio, you know, you follow the latest attack vectors and you mentioned listen to the show. We, we try and follow the latest attack vectors as well. What are some of the wins that you're seeing, uh, you know, across your customer base where you're like, wow, like that was a relatively new attack vector and we handle it well and our customers love us for it? I don't know if it's a new attack vector. It's just an evolution of vectors. I mean, the, the human vector is always still the weakest. Spear phishing is still the same. They're just using different exploits or they're using different techniques. I think uh, the big thing three or four years ago was one letter off domains was pretty cool. You know, people, yep. people couldn't sell the difference. Yeah. And um, uh, it hasn't changed much. I think uh, the phishing is getting better. Uh, the attackers aren't 15-year-olds living in Eastern Europe anymore. They're, they're 20 or 30, and they can speak and write English intelligently now. So they're, they're, act, they're drafting emails and web pages that are actually a lot, a lot closer to, uh, to what what makes sense for somebody to understand in a spearfishing email. I think what's cool is uh, the evasion techniques have, uh, have gotten better over the last couple of years. Um, you know, yeah. there's in-memory techniques. There's, uh, there's other ways. So just, I guess, background, I worked at, at an endpoint vendor 
um, some on LinkedIn profile. I don't want to drop names. Um, I worked in an endpoint vendor for about six years, and we uh, we did just about everything from uh, using only debugs, IDA Pro, and stuff to to understand how malware was working. Um, and one of the things uh, that was pretty nifty about it is on the heuristics engine. We're talking about AV vendor from six years ago. Um, a couple of different ways that did bypasses were, you know, just typical Windows API calls like sleep or wait for multiple objects. And um, those techniques are pretty depreciated now because a lot of uh, a lot of vendors have built in detection techniques for that. Like I know FireEye has already, um, but it's still interesting the the evolution uh, of these techniques. So from I guess from my experience with our customers, uh, the biggest problem right now was. Uh, and I know everybody talks about it, and I hate talking about it, is ransomware. Ransomware through spear phishing. And, and it's such an easy thing to do, and there's like 20 different uh, ransomware kits out there. So it, it's not really sexy to talk about, but you know, I, it's one of the biggest problems that companies are facing right now. They, they don't want to have their assets uh, locked up and encrypted, especially if they're not running proper backups. Yeah, I, I really really feel that uh, ransomware has done more to further the state of computer security than any compliance document that's ever come down the line just because it's immediate and visceral and like management understands it it's not this weird idea of a teenager in a basement trying to hack it's something that 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 happens and it immediately has painful impact and uh, for that i thank the people behind ransomware <laughs> yeah they've done they've done a lot to further the cause even the uh even the board members and the C level guys, uh, a lot of the, our, our customers and partners are, uh, are are pretty in tune with ransomware and, and some of the indicators. So you're right; it's uh, it's been interesting to uh, uh, to us in the industry. Well, I think you bring up a great point, Michael. I think uh, in general, from what I've experienced, is the C level, uh, the CISO and the CIO especially are very much in tune with what's going on in our world more so than ever before. Do you experience that today? And, and how does that change your conversations when you're, you're talking with C-levels? Budget. <laughs> budget. I mean, they, um, they're actually allocating budget for defensive tools and, uh, and obviously detection tools as well. Now, uh, it used to be where you would just get drawn into a battle. And like I said, I spent six years in the endpoint side and the endpoint side was not sexy six years ago. You didn't have the silences or the carbon blacks or anybody else out there back then. Um, so there, there was, uh, always a battle for budget and everything was kind of commoditized and, and you were battling their, their budget for infrastructure and virtualization infrastructure, right? You were battling for mindshare against VMware and Citrix and, you know, all these virtualization players who were talking about data centers. This is before the, uh, the cloud apocalypse, right? So they, uh, budget was a, as a big problem. There was no delineation between IT budget um, infrastructure budget and security budget. Um, so we've uh, obviously we've seen an increase in spending. Everybody's talking about it. Um, but I mean, even even John, you folks over at Black Hills are are, <clears throat> are able to to leverage a lot of that budget now because people understand that they they need to test their security practices. They need to have proper policies. They need to get cyber insurance. They and they're 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 more willing to talk to. Uh, to uh, to a group of folks who can who can do some red teaming or purple teaming on their environments and spend the money. Um, so uh, tell us about kill chains. What do you want to know about kill chains? Well, and, and, like question. Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of it, it's kind of a, a strange, almost a buzzwordy kind of term. Um, but I, from what I understand, it logarithms products in the space that you play, and you can absolutely help identify some of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's a prehistoric term, man, and it was coined by the U.S. Uh, the uh, U.S. Air Force a long, long time ago, and now it's become really buzzwordy. Uh, if you would have said it ten years ago, nobody would have paid attention to you. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, so from a kill chain perspective, if you're looking at initial reconnaissance to the initial compromise to lateral movement through the network to exfiltration, e- each of those, uh, I-, I guess, from a kill chain perspective, each of those sections or parts have different indicators within it. And if we're talking about log source and context of those log sources, uh, you can see that activity uh, typically in an environment. So uh, I'll take you through uh, something simple. Paul, you get an email from uh, from John, or at least you think it's from John, with a PDF. Your browser crashes or whatever, and you're exploited. 
Um, <clears throat> the reception of that email goes for your, uh, if you're using Office 365 or Exchange, right? It's got a one letter, one letter off domain. That right there is an indicator, right? If that's coming through the log message and you're parsing out the, uh, the message store for Exchange, you should be able to see that the sender address is different from the message tracking address, right? So that in itself should bubble up and be a risky event. Uh, so that, that obviously from the initial compromise would show up. Uh, the second point to that would be if you're an attacker and you want to maintain persistence, Paul, I'm the attacker. I'm, you know, now in, uh, now in your environment, I'm not going to use your account to do a lot, right? What I'm probably going to use your account for is to create a secondary account or a tertiary account. Use that secondary account to then uh, either run scans or run Mimi cats, dump some hashes, and then try to move laterally across the network to something that makes sense. Uh, mm-hmm. That in itself generate a ton of logs, right? Mimi cats, that process should generate logs if you're using a proper endpoint sensor. Uh, you creating another account and then deleting it within a couple hours because you used it to run Mimi cats should generate some type of alert. Um, and then data exfiltration or in ransomware's case, the disabling of LSAS and shadow copy services and then massive file encryption or a slow and low transfer outside of the network where you've got a long running session that's only transferring at five bytes or five kilobytes a second. So there's different areas where uh, inside of the kill chain where it's generating log data, but you have to understand where to look for it, or you have to have a system that can look for those indicators and then understand those indicators. So how how much of it falls on the user to uh, know what those attack points are and what those different points in the kill chain, for lack of a better term, are uh, versus what's automatically inside of the product that it's detecting without me, the user, having to train it? Well, if you're using a competitor's product, you have to train it. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I want to talk more about our labs team, uh, just because I think they're, they're fantastic. They're headed up by uh, James Carter. I don't know if you guys ever talked to James. Uh, James no? Oh, okay. So James uh, ran the security practice at Mayo Clinic for a, a, a long time. Uh, after Mayo Clinic, he came over to take over a CISO and, and run our labs team. So labs team is split up into two different groups. Right? We have the MDI team that does... You know, all the processing, contextualization against all the logs. But we also have our uh, our security team. The security team is, uh, and that's led up by, uh, headed up by Greg Foss and a couple of folks. I think you guys have spoken with Greg a couple We times. love Greg. Greg, yeah, Greg and I go way back. I love Greg. <laughs> uh, so Greg, uh, Greg has a bunch of folks working with him. What they do is they look at, you know, the latest techniques being used in the industry. And they start building uh, concrete rule sets that look for it inside of our products. So they actually build you know, our rule blocks and, and some of the learning blocks against that. Uh, so they've rolled out our ransomware rule blocks. They've rolled out a number of our UEBA and network-based uh, anomaly detection rule blocks. They also run, you know, their own purple team testing against us internally. And we're, we're a heavily, we're, we have a heavy sales organization, right? We're a, a startup that's been around for 12 years. So, you know, we, uh, we have two or 300 sales and sales engineers and sales support staff. So they, um, Greg and his team is constantly testing our own people because anybody who's got about six, 700 people is typically going to look like another company or customer, right? So vendors who aren't testing themselves and have a team that are testing themselves and then putting that into practice in their product are doing themselves a disservice. And, you know, I I, I do want to say, in, as Logarithm's been a, a sponsor for a while, uh, just full disclosure, but what I've gathered from speaking with people from Logarithm along the lines of the, the labs folks, for example, Everyone seems really happy. Like Logarithm seems like a really cool place to work. <laughs> like oh, you guys yeah. have well, they these- actually, they actually let one of their people come to episode 500 and drink with us all day yeah. long. That's <laughs> usually a sign of a cooler company. Well, not only but, that, yeah. it, it seems like the culture, uh, that startup culture still exists at Logarithm to your point, Michael. And, um, Greg and others have described how they have the, uh, competitions where you go develop something cool on company time and then you talk yeah. about all the cool things and some of those cool things become products like in it just everyone that, that comes on from logarithm really uh seems like they enjoy working there uh which speaks to your labs team you know they're out there having fun and doing their thing but they're actually having an impact uh both inside the product and and for customers as well and that can be a, a difficult thing to sustain over time oh yeah but a lot of people i talk to logarithm like yeah i've been here for five years or, or more so uh, that's yeah. that's really cool. I came here about three and a half years ago. There's about 200 people, and we're we're pushing past 650 now. Um, I uh, I had the same concern, right? I thought, you know, 200 people, it's not that big yet. Right. It's still scrappy. It's out of Boulder, Colorado, so you know they're a little more loose. Um, 
but we, uh, I don't know, in three and a half years, not much has, not much has changed from a culture perspective. Yeah. That's Products awesome. have gotten better. People are, uh, they hired some pretty, pretty cool people. Greg was one of the, he was one of the best pickups we got. He, he's awesome. Absolutely. John, more questions for Michael? Nope, I'm good. But we gotta. I, I'd like to get them on and talk more about the automation, um, the kind of the incident response stuff because that's clearly something that we haven't been talking about. And yeah. to be honest, there's, it's such a big area. It's probably something we need to talk about the other vendors in the space and what's happening because it is a huge movement right now. Everyone's trying to be that single pane pane of glass that does everything, and uh, it should be something we should bring them on again. It's a new buzzword: security automation orchestration. Right? Everybody's talking oh. about it. Uh, orchestration uh, what is it uh casby gotta love casby that's a new buzzword that's a fun one and through um, a single pane of glass that's very important single well. pane of glass mm. that's right the operative yeah. word there well michael thank you very much for appearing on enterprise security weekly it was nice having you we'll be right back with the enterprise security news stay tuned Waterfall Security Solutions, the market leader in unidirectional gateway technology. Their industrial cybersecurity technology protects critical infrastructure and control systems from remote online cyber attacks. It's installed around the world, including nuclear plants in the U.S. and electric grids. Their unidirectional security gateway creates an impassable physical barrier preventing communications from flowing into industrial control networks, enabling safe and secure IT and OT integration, remote monitoring, and cloud services. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash SCADA, the first 100 listeners who register will receive a free copy of SCADA Security, What's Broken and How to Fix It, written by Waterfall's VP of Industrial Security, Andrew Ginter. Algorithms Netmon Freemium delivers real-time network visibility to quickly identify emerging threats in your IT environment. Netmon Freemium is a free commercial-grade network forensics and traffic analytics solution. You can use Netmon Freemium's powerful capabilities to search against all observed network traffic, identify abnormal traffic patterns in application usage, and quickly analyze full packet captures. Take the first step towards real-time network visibility. Visit logarithm.com forward slash freemium to learn more and download it today. Pony Express, check out their line of penetration testing devices, including the Pwn Pad, Pwn Phone, and Pwn Pro. For enterprises, there's Pwn Pulse, providing continuous visibility into wired, Wi-Fi, and Bluetooth spectrums across all physical locations, including remote sites and branch offices. For all those hard-to-reach places, there's Pony Express. Visit them on the web at PonyExpress.com. Signal Sciences is the industry's first web protection platform that works in any cloud, any container, any platform as a service, and any modern application architecture. The Signal Sciences web protection platform can be deployed in next-generation WAF, RASP, or reverse proxy modes, giving customers ultimate flexibility and coverage. Protect your web applications with Signal Sciences web protection platform. Signal Sciences, securing code and connecting teams. For more information, check them out at signalsciences.com forward slash ESW. Couple of quick announcements before we get started. ITPro.tv's courses now include Exchange 2016, Wireshark, ECIH, and ECES. ITPro TV recently introduced new membership levels. The new standard membership is $57 a month or $507 a year and includes access to on-demand course library, live chat, and the Q&A forum. The new premium membership is $85.70 per month or $857 per year and includes access to all standard membership features, including unlimited transcender practice exams, virtual labs, and access to the enterprise portal. Download courses with annual standard or premium memberships. We're also excited to be attending the 13th Annual Secure World Boston Conference, March 22nd and 23rd at the Heinz Convention Center in the Back Bay. Secure World brings together New England's cybersecurity community of high-quality training, collaboration, and networking. This year's theme, Surviving the Siege, Medieval Lessons in Modern Security. Don't miss presentations from Larry Wilson, Esmond Kane, Sandy Backick, and many more. Earn 12 to 16 CPE credits. Security Weekly listeners save $100 off their registration or full conference pass by going to secureworldexpo.com and using the discount code securityweekly. So we'll be there. That's next week. We'll be there next week. That'll be fun. I'm not presenting there. We're just hanging out, having fun. So if you're going to Secure World, come by and see us. We'll have a camera. We can like record stuff. It'll be fun. That'll be fun. It'll be fun. Cameras are, cameras are neat. Cameras are neat. Uh, what else is neat? Sky High Network. Sky High. Is yeah. the CASB. 
going to lock the cash. All right. Can I just jump right into this one? Just jump right into it. All right. So they're talking about two patents they have. And usually companies get patents because it makes their portfolio a lot more attractive to potential buyers, especially the amount of money that a buyer is willing to pay because you're look, it's like you're buying a company for their sense of exclusivity, which is really, really cool. The first patent reads like crap. I have no idea what it actually means. It's it looks like total. It covers garbage. and I quote the ability for companies to automate risk evaluation, threat monitoring, and policy enforcement across thousands of cloud services. So it's a magical unicorn. It's a magical unicorn. <laughs> It, it's a, it's a box, and in this box is a unicorn, and the, the unicorn farts rainbows. It poops, it poops skittles. Your, yes, it poops skittles. And it's nice. It's just it's just a single pane of unicorn glass. Um, <laughs> so that one reads like crap. The second one actually is very interesting. Um, the yes, second one kind of ties into another one of our uh, stories that we have, or news articles that we have a little bit later, where we're starting to see more vendors that are trying to put analysis on data that is actually stored in the cloud, insofar as like. Um, Behavioral analytics. Where is your data? Who's accessing the data? Who has rights to access that data? How many data entity points or documents is an individual user ID uh, accessing? So that one is actually pretty interesting to me. I think that that's pretty cool. You know what? You I don't know, what I know find, if it's something that's going to hold, though. You yeah. know what I find interesting? It says that it tokenizes sensitive customer data, right? And the, the whole I, I thing. Think, and we we actually have a, a new sponsor that'll be coming on uh, in just a little bit, not on this show, but in subsequent shows that I'm excited about. Because I'm always like, well, how do you know what data sensitive and how sensitive is it? And people are like, I, I don't know that. Like over there looks important and that's kind of important over there. And Jimmy, you know, he clicks stuff over there and yeah, that's really important data. But how do you know where it is, what it is and how it's classified? So there's actually a vendor coming on to help us uh, sort some of that stuff out, which I was excited about. John and I obviously evaluate a lot of different vendors, so if we're excited, uh, you should be too. And I think that's one thing that I see not many people doing very well, but obviously it's the fundamental for your security program. We talked about incident response. Like, How do you know what you should respond to in what manner if you don't know what sensitive means to you yeah, in your data? It, it, and, and I think that after the... Um like the threat intelligence feed storm has passed. I think that this is going to be the next one. Um, you know, when we're talking about behavioral analytics and logging in the cloud, because mm-hmm. right now logging in the cloud is an absolute complete unmitigated train wreck. Um, as far as like finding out where your data is, we ran into what we thought was an incident at BHIS and just trying to figure out who had access to which files and when they accessed them was kind of a nightmare. And that's not something that's exclusive to just, you know, mm-hmm. Google documents or anything like that. It's actually a much larger issue. That's a kind of systematic across the entire industry as a whole. So that's why I think that second patent is actually less crappy than the first patent. Yes, speaking I agree. of crappy. Oh no, are we on story number two now? We're on Looking Glass. I'll let you read this one. Well, you know, so while well, the quote is kind of yeah, you're going to make fun of the quote. However, I think it's interesting. So Looking Glass is basically saying that they have a security platform and they want other people to sell it and they're making it very easy for other people to sell it. And I, I think you're going to see this a lot. It's certainly a, a strategy for a company and how like all in and there in the channel is, you know, in my previous roles at Tenable and such, I learned about, you know, this type of selling. Uh, specifically, John and I have talked about it for our own startup. How do you enable other people to do it? Looking Glass is a threat intelligence, according to them, is the next frontier for security-minded partners who have historically sold cybersecurity solutions that protect data center and infrastructure. Uh, they've created our, their intuitive, flexible, and accessible portal to help partners complete daily tasks and expedite marketing sales and technical efforts. Look, they're, they're all in, in the channel. They want to make it easy for people to resell their services. I think as we address the mid-market, I think as we look at all the new security vendors that are trying to sell their stuff, this is a strategy. Now, it depends on where your company is in terms of how you buy this stuff. Maybe you do buy it through a partner, and that helps you, especially if you're a mid-market organization. You don't have the staff to deal with tons and tons of different vendors. You're probably going to go to some type of channel partner that's going to hook you up with a bunch of technologies. Hopefully, they all fit together and work. Yep. In larger enterprises, there are larger teams that make sure everything fits together and work and typically deal with the vendors uh, directly. Now, that's a large generalization. I know you may fall outside of the scope of that, but in general, I, that's how I see the market. Thought it was interesting that they actually issued a press release for Looking Glass to be able to do this. 
So, John. Yeah. And I, I, I think it's interesting because one of two things is happening here. Either threat intelligence is becoming so integral into the way that we look at computer security that it's basically integrating with a number of different partners, partner portals, and reseller, and integrating with additional vendors. And almost every single show, we have a vendor that says that they're integrating with another product. Their threat yep. intelligence feed is in- integrating with another product. It's either that. Or it's also that threat intelligence vendors are also realizing that they better find a way to integrate to the rest of the enterprise or they're going to go out of business very, very quickly. Um, and I personally think it's number two because if we look at some vendors, once again, Threat Connect, who surprised us when I'm like, I hate threat intelligence feeds. And they're like, yeah, we do too. Ooh. And they talked about how they integrate and they try to basically make that threat intelligence data useful to the rest of the organization and correlate it with what you're seeing in the organization. That is was something that is it probably still is very much cutting edge in that particular field, whereas you're seeing a lot of the other threat intelligence vendors that are scrambling to try to integrate with everybody and trying to make that known. So like I said, either A, you're seeing threat intelligence is becoming integral to absolutely everything, or B, you're starting to see it try to find a way to make itself relevant in the rest of a security architecture. So we'll have to see how that plays out over the next, I'd say, 18 to 24 months. Uh, Acunetics has integrated with the Jenkins plugin. Uh, which I believe is a open source plugin. Is that? Is yeah. That, yeah. It's yep. a open source, uh, plugin. Yes. Um, which, you know, I think is interesting. I think it's a, a much more pointed product. I think there are larger enterprise products specifically from HP that a lot of enterprises are using very successfully, but this is an yep. interesting integration. I think Acunetics is much lower on the price scale. They've got some other uh, offerings in vulnerability management that I think smaller organizations can take advantage of. Um, mm-hmm. Generally, I think they've made a good product and done a good job, and now they're integrating into the DevOps cycle so that as you're developing code, it can be vulnerability scanned. I think this is the type of automation that we're going to see in the market and continue to see. I think this is a good thing, John. I don't know. And I we said the word I open source, great. so it's got to be good, I, right? I, I, yeah, it's got to be good. I think this is great. Um, and the reason why I think this is great is if you're in the vulnerability management space for web application vulnerabilities, um, how do you compete with something like Burp Suite Pro? Yeah. Uh, how do you compete with something like Z Attack Proxy? If you're just talking about something that scans and looks for vulnerabilities and that's the end of the day, there's a bunch of tools out there that are very inexpensive or free that do a fantastic job of that. However, if you look at how this like leverages into, like you said, continuous integration, software development lifecycle, well, that's a sellable point, right? It's not just a point-in-time security assessment tool. It's something that can be integrated in all parts of the development and the DevOps process. That's that's cool. And you're seeing that. I think we have another story later, correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, that we have another vendor that is doing integration between vulnerability management and actually making live uh, update changes to web application firewalls. So you're starting to see these vendors that are really going to start differentiating why you should pay $20,000 for a product for having, you know, doing security uh, security scanning for a web application. Why should you spend that money whenever there's lots of products that do that? particular thing much cheaper. And I think that this type of integration is really providing that value that actually justifies writing a check for that amount. Absolutely. Um, so I didn't know this. Uh, Google came out with this new feature, John, and I don't know if you've seen it yet. I haven't read too much about it, but it's called Team Drive. And yep. it allows you to share documents with each other. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Doesn't Google Drive already do that, right? Like I can create folders and files and I can share them. Apparently, what the, Google's the biggest, yeah, what Google's done okay. is as you, John and I both use Google Drive, right? When you create a document, it's by default shared with just you and no one else. So you have to go in and like individually add people. Oh, I want Bobby to see it. I want Larry to see it. I want whoever to see it. And then you get this like mixed mashing of like, well, who has access to what now? Um, mm-hmm. So they've created Team Drive, which essentially allows you. I think it's just the ability to really define groups. They call them teams. You define groups, and then by default, everyone in that group, when you create a document there, already has access to it, which can be a security potential security nightmare if you're not educating your team about who can see what. However, it's a usability feature from Google. Uh, CloudLock is now supporting that feature to help you manage the authentication, as I talked about some of the pitfalls of, do I really want Bobby to see all the documents that are in this bucket? Um, So that was the announcement from uh, Cisco. 
it's CloudLock owned by Cisco now. Is that what I'm? It is. Okay. It is. It is. And this also goes back to what we just talked about a few minutes ago in the fact that we can now have better visibility into what's happening in our Google documents. And that is one of the big things that CloudLock has that we've actually been looking at very closely Mm -hmm. is we would like to have better logging, better alerting, better management, maybe even reports as far as what documents are being used, who's accessing which documents. And uh, like I said, I think that this is really going to be one of the next big things in security. Everything's been thrown up into the cloud, but there's been very, very little in the way of actually doing kind of that account auditing of who's accessing what in the cloud. And this is one of those vendors that does that. So it's a very cool step in the right direction. And it's funny because it's completely based on the fact that Google has not baked that into their offering from the start. I mean, if you look at Google Teams, that's something they should have had from the beginning, right? Or even what if Google buys CloudLock instead of Cisco? They probably dropped the ball on that one. It probably did. Um, but honestly, I could see Google being completely oblivious, uh, to these particular problems. I mean, they don't, they don't really get plugged in, I, I think, to, uh, a lot of the complaints some of their users may have. No, because it's, it's very Google, true. Right? Yeah. It's yeah. very true. Um, so when you, whenever we're reading something and I get to the point, like when I look at the article and some of the head, uh, subheadings in the article are zero false positive web application vulnerability testing and Instant, reliable, virtual patching. I kinda, Zero false positive, yeah. I kind of want to throw up in my mouth, like not even a little, <laughs> like a lot. <laughs> yeah, this is bad. Does it actually say who wrote this? Can we call them out personally or are we just going to call out the vendor? It was probably someone in the marketing team for Imperva. Uh, that this, I believe it was Imperva, right? Yeah, Imperva that this announcement Ziv. Yeah. Ziv is the person that did it. Very, very marketing. Now, listeners have written in, which I encourage all of our listeners to do, uh, and either corroborate our story and say, yeah, that product doesn't work, or say, well, no, like the product, this product or that product from this vendor is actually good, and I've seen it working in environments. We've certainly received email about Imperva. I want to thank the person for, for doing that. So we, when we talk about products, we're not saying that every product doesn't work, that we talk about badly because they had a press release that John and I called out their marketing speak. However, whenever you read something that blatantly says zero false positive, you, as a security professional or even a human being, you have to call that into question, right? When we speak yeah. in absolutes about things like security products, uh, you, you have to you take that with a grain of salt. And, and take a step back and, and look at what it does. Now, on the flip side, this could be a, a fantastic product. And I think as you already alluded to, John, it actually does make sense that mm-hmm. we see this automation happening between vulnerability identification and protection of the vulnerability. We've tried to do this since the beginning of time with IPS, right? It's hard, yep. but I, I think we've gotten better at it. And hopefully Imperva has too. I, I still question first zero uh false positive i also do not like the term virtual patch because it is not it is not a patch right a patch fixes <laughs> fixes the bug in the software okay it, a virtual patch it is not a, it is more like a firewall rule than a virtual patch i've always hated that term virtual patch so I, th- I think that we got to talk to Ziv directly because this is Ziv's first blog post for imperva mm-hmm. um so he might be new and that's Fantastic. So we're going to talk to Ziv directly. Ziv, welcome to the security community. <laughs> I assume you haven't been around very much just by the article or the, the post that you just put in. So let's look exactly as Paul said, there's some things that we have that are trigger issues in computer security. Whenever they come up, we start rolling around on the floor, frothing at the mouth and kicking at random children that walk by. So some of the ones that you hit and you managed to hit a lot of them in mm-hmm. one article. So the plus side for this is you managed to get a lot of mistakes out early. So you won't repeat those mistakes. <laughs> Again, and that's good. That's good. These are all good things. Zero false positive, like Paul said, absolutes. Just don't do that. Instant and reliable virtual patching. You're not. <clears throat> you're not actually patching the vul- the vulnerability. You're correct. Putting in a, uh, compensating a temporary compensating control. Ah, I like that temporary <laughs> compensating control. Yes. And, and Paul and I can come up with this crap all day long. I mean, we we can come up with ways <laughs> that you know. To say things. All right. Now I'm going to talk about, now that we've kind of started out with some crap. Okay. Um, let's talk about what you did right. Okay. The thing you did right in this that actually kept me interested in this article was you actually went through the step by step kind of how this particular tool works. You went through and you showed how you create a project, how you can basically do the configuration of that project. You went through step by step how this happens. 
And for that, sir, I applaud you. Yeah, that's, because that's awesome. That's actually, you say that there's a problem and it is a real problem that there's vulnerabilities and you need to update your web application firewall rules on the fly to address those vulnerabilities. That is a real problem. And you very quickly and succinctly went through step by step by step how we could mitigate temporarily that vulnerability in the, uh, in the web interface that you guys showed. That is awesome. That is, that is cool. You need to keep doing keep stuff doing like that, that because yes. that die, that buys tremendous street cred and it kept me interested and kept other people interested. And to anybody that's looking at this, I, I think that this is cool from a technology perspective. This is awesome. Um, it's actually seeing that intersection between vulnerabilities and having your mitigating controls like your web application firewall work properly. That's awesome. And this is a very, very, very cool step. I think it's neat. I would like to see more of it, but, uh, but in the future, you should really try to keep your marketing propaganda speak what do you say paul first paragraph or first couple of sentences yeah i well i think the first paragraph a couple of sentences should be the problem uh statement and should be okay maybe not have so much marketing uh in yeah you know uh i think the the marketing speak I, i don't know it's a it's a blending of marketing speak and technical post um which is a hard thing. I mean, working at Tenable, dude, that, that's a hard thing to do. I get yep. it, right? Like, it's not yep. easy to do that. Um, but yeah, dial back the marketing meter. And I, I think your message gets to your intended audience, uh, but in a much more positive light where John and I are like, yeah, like that looks cool, dude, you know? Yeah. And overall, I had to get halfway through this piece of crap uh, to the point where I was like, oh, oh, oh. Oh, that's you can, cool. You can actually Get show the, me how it works, which John and I complain about all the time that yes. vendors make claims and they don't actually show how it works. And, and that's important. Yep. So, and this is, this is beautiful. The second half, you can just lop off the first part of it, <laughs> put it right up. And this is a perfect article. So. I agree. Uh, F secure buys in verse path. Uh, is this glimmers of hope for IOT security? I've seen a couple of these, uh, acquisitions and, and or mergers where essentially, a security company or uh, an I well, it, it works a couple of different ways, right? There's uh, like a IoT company that buys an IoT security company, and there's a security company that buys uh, an, another IoT security company. It seems to be that there are mergers and acquisitions going on that, to me, are glimmers of hope for IoT security, uh, and hopefully that starts to trickle back into the enterprise. Uh, or into products that we all use every day, like our cars, if you get in your car every day and drive to work. Um, that is a good thing. In this case, F-Secure acquired uh, Inverse Path, which provides hardware security technology to specialist sectors, including automotive, avionics, and industrial control, as well as traditional software applications. So. So Inverse Path is kind of an interesting company. I, I hadn't heard of them before today, but it looks like they do some pretty in-depth um, – very, very in-depth embedded security assessments. So it definitely looks like it's a really good acquisition for F-Secure. I'd have to know more about Inverse Path, but they kind of look like the same type of company as like Grimm, which mm-hmm. does a lot of embedded stuff. That's uh, uh, that's Atlas's company. Okay. And uh, they do some really, really cool stuff too. So it, 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 I, sometimes we get hopeful, Paul, but I don't think that this IoT thing is going to be solved anytime soon because there's yeah, so much legacy crap out there. But I'd like to get your opinion on that because you know way more about it than I do. It'll all be in my talk at uh, – which talk is that? Uh, be it, no, Source. Source Boston. Thank you. Yep. Source Boston. All righty. Well, that concludes the news for this week. John, nice to have you back. Um, Awesome time on the show today. Thanks, everyone, for listening and watching. See everyone next time on Enterprise Security Weekly.